we are going to embark upon what we're naming a equipping series. And we want to give the church an opportunity to go perhaps a little deeper on uh, some areas of theology, which uh, normally we don't have that opportunity to do. So we thought it'd be a good idea to uh, tackle one of the major Christian doctrines, and that being the Trinity. So over the next three Sundays, uh, that's what we're going to to look at. By no means will we cover uh, the entire, if you like, canon on Trinitarian theology. But I hope it gives you a, a heart for going a little deeper, a heart for, uh, at the end of the day, worshipping our one triune God for who he is. And I've been incredibly blessed by preparing this uh, short mini-series and uh, so as we go through it, it's going to be more, well, less formal, more informal. Uh, if, you can, if you've got any questions as we go through, don't yell them out, <laughs> but uh, please make a note of them. We're going to have a question time on the third Sunday. So any material we cover, uh, or email, email us to the office and we'll just make sure that uh, we cover off some of those things uh, in the final, final Sunday together. Let's pray. Uh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for your great love to us. We thank you for your word, which is inexhaustible. We thank you that when we start to reach the depths of what you reveal about yourself, all we can do is fall on our knees and worship you. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who has atoned for our sin. We thank you that he has redeemed us, justified us, reconciled us, forgiven us. Father, we thank you for your spirit that opens our hearts up, regenerates, convicts us, gives us power to live this life here on this earth, develops the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word. And we just pray that uh, through this uh, series, we will get a further glimpse of your glory. And we pray as we do so that it will develop a deep heart of worship and thanks towards you, our triune God. We pray this in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. With you, I've got some uh, notes there, so if you haven't got any notes, please come and grab some. Uh, they'll be helpful as we go through uh, tonight. Uh, you'll notice on one side of your piece of paper, you have something called the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And as pointed out, it wasn't um, complied by 700 AD, it was compiled by 700 AD. Uh, but comply, complied, it's, it's, it's okay. When we talk about the Trinity, when we talk about the concepts of the Trinity, as you're all aware, the word does not occur in the text of our Bibles. It's a man-made word to, to bring us into concepts of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit the unique oneness of God, 
and yet three distinct persons. Back in uh, 381, there was uh, a fairly large historical debate going on about the whole aspect of the Trinity, and, and we will look at that in a little bit more detail later tonight. But as a result of the debates and the schisms and the, the councils that were held, this particular document called the uh, Nicene-Constantinople Creed was established. And we're going to read this together. Uh, because at the heart of this is a lot of, a lot of things that relate to our view of what the Trinity is. You may not have realized that that goes way back to 381, and you may be kind of uncomfortable reading a liturgical statement because it's not our practice. You know, we're not Methodists, we're not Anglicans. But um, these words are wonderful, so we're going to give it a go. Um, so stand up with me. And uh, we'll read this uh, creed together. We'll try and do it in unison, and we'll try to do it in time, and we'll have a bit of fun with it. So let's go. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light from light, very God from very God, Begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried. On the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. That, as we read it, may have brought up all sorts of uh, things in your mind. Okay, when we talk about one holy Catholic church, we're talking about the church universal. Okay, just so that can ease your mind in that. Back in 381, there wasn't a distinction between the East and the West when it came to churches. Now, you may be confused about the Trinity. You, may, you won't be the only one. And so we want to uh, provide some clarity. But before we do, I want to show you a little video. And these are, are three friends of mine, uh, Patrick, uh, Bob, and Bill. Now, listen to this very carefully because I think this sometimes sums up our view of the Trinity. Thanks, guys. So did you get all that? Did you get all that? Did you understand any of the terms, even though it was in Irish? Because that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, I think a very clever video, a very uh, clever way of 
trying to understand what the Trinity is all about. <coughs> you see, um, what has happened over the last few weeks, I, I did a survey with about 25 people here from the church on the Trinity. And there were some questions that I asked in that survey. And it became quite obvious that as a congregation, we probably don't understand this particular doctrine that well. Uh, at best, 75% of the respondents said they had a basic to average understanding of what the Trinity was. Uh, about 60% of those surveyed said the Trinity is, the metaphor best to describe it is either the water one or the egg one or the three-leaf clover. Uh, so that was interesting in itself. Everyone considered it was a very important and unmovable type doctrine. And uh, also some of the findings from this particular survey just uh, highlighted certain aspects that we just don't understand about the Trinity. So I want to highlight and heighten your appreciation of this ancient doctrine. So there's no denying that the doctrine of the Trinity is a fundamental precept of the Christian faith. There's no denying that whatsoever. Throughout church history, this doctrine has undergone an extensive development. We will view a little bit later this evening the seven or eight councils, ranging from 325 to 781, that met to form and shape our view of who God is. So when we study something like the Trinity, we need to understand that we've got to have a historical theology going on, which underpins our biblical theology of it and underpins our systematic theology. See, historical theology is something that brings context and the development of the doctrine of the Trinity was very much a historical type uh, piece of theology. There was heresies that were coming into the church as it was forming. And I'm so grateful for the men that God has placed in these councils. They had the insight to wrestle with these issues. So we wouldn't fall into the trap of modalism. We wouldn't fall into the trap of subordination. wouldn't fall into the trap of Arianism. That wrestled with the issues that God is one in essence. Father, Son, and Spirit is one in essence. One in unity. But three distinct persons. And I think old Patrick said it well right at the end. Is a mystery we cannot comprehend. But it is a fact. And the doctrine of the Trinity sets us apart from every other religion in the world. Because the doctrine of the Trinity shows relationship. It shows deep relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that is essential when it comes to our Christian faith. So one of the important things of discussing a historical doctrine like this and historical theology is 
It draws us together. It gives us a unity within the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 talks about that. Historical theology will lead us by God's Spirit throughout every church age. Just because it's old does not mean it's not relevant. These men were brilliant minds as they wrestled with God's Word. They didn't have the full canon of Scripture until about 200 AD. And then by 325, they were making major calls on who Christ was. Was he fully God and fully man? On who the Father was and who the Spirit was and their roles in one essence. In Timothy, uh, if you've got your Bible, just turn, turn with me to 1 Timothy. We're going to be doing a little bit of, uh, what is it, Bible drill tonight. As we go through scriptures, there's a few to look at. And when it comes to the importance of historical theology, I, I love what Paul says to Timothy. And it says in uh, chapter 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy. And you can, just, you can just hear this aged apostle, can't you? Timothy is his disciple. He's poured hours into mentoring him. I just don't think an English grabs this, the gravity of his heart as he pours out, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The deposit entrusted to him was the word of God, the teachings from Paul. Guard it. That's the importance of historical theology. Guard that deposit. Avoid the ir- irrelevant babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And then further over, and uh, we'll look in Second Timothy. Paul gives the same theme to him. In one thirteen, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love, and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I guess that's what we're doing a little bit this evening as we discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. We're guarding the good deposit which has been passed down from generation to generation. You know, I think uh, you've got to ask the question, why were there so many battles about this doctrine early on? And I think it comes down to a, a number of things. The chief reason that the doctrine of the Trinity is so staunchly defended is due to the fact that it's absolutely essential to the testimony of the New Testament revelation. See, what sets the New Testament apart from the Old Testament? What sets the New Testament apart from the Old Testament? Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Yes, New Covenant, absolutely. But it's the Word becoming flesh, incarnate, dwelling amongst us. We have, in the New Testament, we have Trinitarian formula everywhere. Just uh, the most common one we know is 
as you are going, make disciples, baptizing them in the what? The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. At uh, Jesus' baptism, the same thing occurred. The Spirit descended from above. God cried out, This is my Son, who I'm well pleased. And the Son received the Spirit. It's a Trinitarian aspect to the New Testament. Uh, turn with me to Romans 15. These are, these are beautiful words that Paul writes in relation to himself. Verse 14, chapter 15. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, uh, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with the knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by the way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles and the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You get the Trinitarian nature of that? Isn't that wonderful? As, as Paul testifies to what his prime purpose is for these Roman Christians, he says... I'm a minister of the grace of God primarily. And this is what God has given me. And I'm also a minister of Jesus Christ because he personifies the grace of God. And I'm being sanctified by his spirit. Good enough for Paul, good enough for me. Good enough for you. As we wrestle through this doctrine of the Trinity. You cannot go into John 17, you know, the great high priestly pair of Jesus, and not go with the view that that is so deeply entrenched in Trinitarian theology. It's absolutely beautiful. As he cries out to his Father, Father, as we are one, let my disciples be one. And I'm sending a spirit, my spirit, to enable this to happen. You know, without Trinitarian theology, some of the affirmations of the Son's work by the Father and his earthly ministry would just collapse into statements of heresy or lunacy. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, our Christology would be majorly in deficit. I love what this guy, Vladimir Lusky, says. You've got the quote there. He uh, doesn't hold back. He pulls no punches. Vladimir Glusky says, I'll try and say it in a Russian accent, but it won't go that well. If we reject the Trinity as the sole ground of all reality and of all thought, we are committed to a road that leads nowhere. We end up in a, a pora, or it means a despair, in folly, in the dis, uh, disingeneration of our being, in spiritual death. Between the Trinity and hell, there lies no other choice. He was a uh, theologian for the Eastern Church. They hold the Trinity highly. 
So let's just look at some of the further biblical evidence we've done in the New Testament. Let's look at evidence in the Old Testament, because surely the Old Testament just talks about a one God, a monotheistic God. Is the Trinity evident in the Old Testament? Well, I think you go right back to Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. You've got the creation account. You go to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And you come across the statement. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right from the very start, we have a plurality in creation. It's not explicitly Trinitarian. Right? It does, we can't see Father, Son, and Spirit in that particular text, but it is plural. And uh, see, uh, the pronouns are really important in here. Let us make God in our image. And there are several exp- explanations given for why these pronouns could be there. Firstly, it's an editorial plural. Um, however, while that may be plausible, there were very few editorial plurals in the original Hebrew language. So you could probably cross that one off. Another major thought about this is it is a um, plural of majesty. It's a term, and um, the plural of majesty occurs often right through Genesis 1. Because Elohim, it says, you know, in the beginning God, in the beginning Elohim. It's a, it's a plural of majesty. So a lot of people said, okay, because the very name of God, Elohim, is uh, there that says that it's Trinitarian. But um, once again, there are other aspects right throughout the Old Testament where that's used and it clearly isn't a plural. And uh, it would be plausible in Elizabethan English. Very plausible in that and in 18th century France, but there's little basis for the plural of majesty in Hebrew. Uh, A Jewish scholar said, well, this is a reference to angels. His name was Umberto uh, Cousteau, argues that the plural reference here refers to the heavenly host with God at the creation. Now, that particular interpretation would fail contextually and theologically. Because, as you see, there's no reference to angels in the context. And it explains, the the view fails to explain that while uh, God later in the same context uses a singular pronoun in 129. And furthermore, passages like Isaiah 40, which emphasize the total independence of God in the creation event, suggests that including angels here would be theologically unjustified. You know, we get a great deal of clarity when John writes, don't we? Because he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So from the New Testament forward, we see that, yes, there is a plurality, and Christ was the Word. But if you're reading the Old Testament alone, what's going on? Is it explain the Trinity? I think at best... 
this verse explaining a plurality. There's more than one involved in creating man. Is it Trinitarian? Not quite sure. Move over to Genesis chapter 17. Just very quickly here, in Genesis uh, chapter seven, uh, 16, sorry, Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13, you have a, a story here where the angel of the Lord comes to Sarah. The angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. Many appearances in the Old Testament of the angel of Yahweh. Who is that? Who is the angel of Yahweh? Sorry? Yeah, second person of the Trinity, as we would say. It's not God the Father himself, because after the fall, no man can see God and live. John 1 tells us that. So I think the angel of Yahweh is distinctly a deity term for the second person of the Trinity. I want to take you to one other passage in Isaiah 63. This helps me see the Trinity in the Old Testament more clearly than any other passage. It clearly is a plurality, but what about a Trinity? Verse 7 uh, through verse 10. Let's just listen to this. I will recount the steadfast love of of the Lord or of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, and he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his piety, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. It's a pretty strong Trinitarian statement right there. You have Yahweh, the Father. You have the second person of the Trinity, as described as the angel of his presence, save them. A redeeming work. But they rebelled, and the Spirit was grieved. You could do the same thing in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. I'll let you have a look at that one at your own leisure. So that shows us that the Trinity is defendable from Old and New Testament. Some of these, uh, there is far more text. And then you also have the whole process of unity. The Old Testament is full of statements about the evidence and the unity of God. Deuteronomy 6.4, we know it well. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's one of the strongest statements in all of Scripture about the oneness of God. He is one God. The verse could also be translated, the Lord is our God. He is Lord alone. 
And it's interesting, um, in the Hebrew, the word for one here in Deuteronomy 6.4 is the, the word echat, and it can be denoted as a single cluster. If you went to Numbers chapter 13, verse 23, it refers to one cluster of grapes. The same word, echat. And there's another word that's used for one in Hebrew, and it's called yachah. And that denotes total singularity. So, for instance, in uh, Genesis 22.2, where God talks to Abraham about his one son, Isaac. So see the subtle difference there? The oneness of God talked about in Deuteronomy 6.4 has this, this beautiful cluster to it. That's the word that's used, a cluster. How do you have a cluster of oneness? Can you explain that? A cluster of oneness can only be explained in terms of the doctrine of Father, Son, and Spirit. And there's ample proof throughout the, the New Testament as uh, the, the Father is God, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. The Son is God, John 5, 18. And the Spirit is God, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. You know, the three persons are associated as God. Yet they're co-equal and they're distinct. All the presence at, at Christ's baptism. We have some wonderful benedictions like in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We have other major Trinitarian associations. You look at Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of us all. If you want an amazing passage of Trinitarian theology, go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, as the work of salvation is, is shown. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. Doesn't that excite you? That our salvation has nothing to do with us. <laughs> Talked about that this morning. And boy, I'm glad it has nothing to do with me. And we're going to discuss this later on the, third on the third Sunday. We're going to talk about the Trinity in salvation and in sanctification. I'm excited about that because that's where the rubber hits the road. That's why it's important to us. But at the moment it's dry because you just have to learn the history. So stick with it. All right? And that's okay. So the, the Trinity in our salvation, the Father chooses, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. It's just wonderful concepts. Okay, in the next two minutes, we're going to look at all those big words on the back of your piece of paper about the historical development of this Trinitarian theology. 
See, this uh, Nicene Creed that we wrote, that we um, quoted together, emerged after centuries of controversy, debate and modification. And it was because of heresies. Heresies that kept on coming in to the church. And I'm going to look at just a, a couple of these heresies with you and, and we can do more on this later perhaps, but most unlikely. The first lot of heresies was something that's called dynamic monarchianism. Now to be a great theologian, all you've got to do is put ism at the end of a word. Okay, As you can see by these terms, you can be a dynamic monarchianism, which also is adoptionism. You can be a modalistic monarchianism. You can be subordinationism. You can be Arianism or Apollinarianism. They're all a mouthful, but it makes you sound really quite intellectual, doesn't it? So put an ism there and you're doing okay. Yeah, tomorrow in your workplace is when you go up and say, what did you do on Sunday night? Oh, I went to church and we just discussed a few isms. There you go. You can, how would that go in your, church, in your workplace tomorrow? It'd <laughs> be quite interesting, wouldn't it? So the adoptionism, uh, which I'll put it, the dynamic monarchianism was a heresy that was coming through at about oh, late 200s. And it was predominantly saying that um, God adopted Jesus to be the Christ. Okay, and there's something fundamentally wrong with that particular view. So that means that Christ wasn't fully God. He was only just a good man. And God, because he couldn't provide any other way of salvation, had to look for somebody and said, oh, I'm going to adopt you to be my Messiah. So you can see why the councils thought that's reasonably heretical. So that was one of the, the first sort of uh, heresies that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity dealt with. And in reality, most of these heresies like this were dealing with the issue of Christ and his deity. That's why you have those wonderful words in that creed, fully God and fully man. The other one, the modalistic monarchianism, uh, which is uh, where we get our <laughs> our funny guys on the video, modalism, Patrick. It's where it talks about also Sabalianism is another way. It's a guy by the name of Sibelius actually touted this and then it just became modalism, where God simply just manifests himself in three ways. There's only one God, so um, for the first, from creation through to the through to uh, the incarnation, God acted in the mode of Father. That's what modalism teaches. From the incarnation to the ascension, God acted in the mode of the Son. And from ascension to now, God acts in the mode of the Spirit. That's what modalism was teaching. So it was taking away the essential essence of all three persons, the unity So that was modalism. And the, clearly the, uh, the heresy in that is that Jesus can't be divine. 
And what came out of that even further in the West at the time was a doctrine of Pardipassionism. You can write that one down if you can spell it. <laughs> and that's where the belief was the Father actually died on the cross. And that's a heresy as well. And we'll talk about that over the next few weeks, about, okay, could the Father die on the cross, could the Spirit die on the cross, or could the Son, can that happen? And you'll find that, no, that can't, because of something called taxes, the order that is established in the Trinity. Beautiful order. And then the next uh, major heresy was subordinationism. And uh, this was similar to um, modalism. It's trying to avoid modalism. But it was uh, basically saying that Christ was less than God the Father. So it played around with the whole aspect of uh, the, div- the equal divinity of all three. So Christ was subordinate to the Father. He, he, he was less divine. And that's what uh, subordination. And some really, really strong early church fathers touted this view. fellow by the name of Tertullian. Uh, he was a subordinist. And Origen, who pretty much through his life maintained his subordination. So Christ was something just a little bit less than God. Still divine, but not quite so divine. So you can see the issue with that when it comes to salvation, can't you? You can see the real issue in that because Christ was the perfect sacrifice. Without spot, without blemish. The only acceptable sacrifice. And the final one there, uh, Arianism. I've actually got two to go. Arius denied the deity of Christ completely. He said Christ was just a created being. So that was really what got Nicaea going in 325, that particular heresy. The church said, you've got to be joking. He is not a created being. He's God. Don't you read John 1.1? 1, 1? You know, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was in God, the Word was God. And uh, so that was the major, major contention in, in 325 AD. And Athanasius, you would have heard that name, he was a major, major opponent to Arius. And he affirmed that, no, Christ is the eternal Son of God. Christ has always been there and will always be there. He is the same. And he used a word called... Homoousius. He is the exact representation of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. He is God in essence. And this is a really important thing that Athanasius said. So write this down. He said, Our doctrine of salvation is worthless unless Christ is totally God. Our doctrine of salvation is worthless 
unless Christ is totally God. So that's what started the fights. That's what started the schisms. That's what started the anathemas, as they called. Uh, they get these heretics together and they say, we anathematize you. You're a heretic. You're a heresy. That cannot be part of our doctrine. It can't be part of our orthodoxy. And this is before the church split, remember? This is before uh, the Roman Catholic Church in AD 800 moved away from the Eastern Church. They're all together in the same councils discussing these same things. So from the Nicene Creed, we, we understand and we have clarity around the essence of the Father. We have clarity around true God from true God about the Son. It was not ontological, it wasn't subordination, but it allowed for taxes, as I talked about before, within the Trinity, i.e. order in the Trinity. Each three persons of the Trinity has different functions, yet they're all one essence. The Nicene Creed affirmed that um, Christ was begotten, not made, and that they're all consubstantial with the Father. And then in 381, another council met called the Constantinople Council, and that's the thing we read today. And what that adds is the deity of the Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. And that was actually altered in 561 at the Council of Toledo to proceed from the Father and Son, as you look at the John chapter 16. It has that in there, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. We're going to talk about that because it's kind of an important point. And that's what actually split the West and East Church in 8800 was a controversy over that called the Philippe Controversy. Who does the Spirit proceed from? Okay. So that's, um, that's what was added in 381. In closing, I just want to draw you to Romans chapter 15. Let's look at Romans 15. Before we sing the creed together, actually, we're going to sing the creed. We've spoken it and we're going to sing it. We've got another song too, haven't we? Great. But before we do, let's go to Romans 15. Uh, did I say Romans 15? Romans 11, sorry. Romans 11. Let's keep this in mind when we think about God. Let's keep these verses in mind. Romans 11, verse 32, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him 
and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We may be confused by some of these terms. Wrestle with them, because as you do, you'll start to understand some of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. Yes, he is one God, and yes, he is three in persons. And yes, that is essentially Christian. That is what sets us apart from every other faith. As Bruce Ware says, the doctrine of the Trinity affirms that God's whole and undivided essence belongs equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three persons of the Godhead. That's a wonderful summary statement of the Trinity. Let's pray and then we're going to sing. Father, we thank you that your ways are deep. Father, we thank you that as we open our hearts and our minds to who you are, as you've revealed yourself through Scripture, it just delights our souls. Help us to get a glimpse of who you are, Father. Help us to get a glimpse of the Son's reality in redeeming us. Help us to get a glimpse of the Spirit's ongoing work and power in our lives for your glory. Help us to get a glimpse of the fact that you are one and yet you are diverse. You have great unity and yet there's great diversity. And we see that all around us. We see that in our creation. We see that in our relationships with one another. And Father, that's your design. Because we're created in your image. And we praise you for that. Father, help us to grow in our depth and our knowledge of you. We pray this in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen.